How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to 19-Year-Old Shrink. This is Will John Grande. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Will Brennan. Will is a junior sociology major who is also VP of recruitment for Agape on campus, which is a service organization that seeks to serve those living with mental illnesses. Will is a great story, and seeing what he has done with Agape has been very encouraging of where the future of destigmatizing mental health can go. He's also a member of Delta Sig, which he pledged last semester for the longest time. Shockingly, I was the only person in Delta Sig with the first name Will. But then you came along, and I'm very grateful you joined, man. Picking me up, Will. I love it. <laughs> and yeah, thanks for thanks for joining. Of course. Yeah. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. And like, first off, so how did this passion for mental health start? Um, probably like dealing with my own mental health, I'd say. So right around the age of 12, my parents unfortunately got a divorce. And, you know, when any traumatic event happens, you know, therapy is the, always the best option. And I got such pushback from my dad. Um, he kept on telling me things like, you know, man up, all these things related to masculinity. And I'm like, what I'm experiencing, I can't man up. Like, what does that mean? How can I get better? But my mom, without him knowing, love my mom, took me and put me in therapy. So it kind of seeing the benefit that I got from it and realizing that so many other people have to deal with parents who don't want therapy or even the accessibility aspect of it. It kind of fueled my fire to try to get more people to be open and discuss um, their own mental health problems. Definitely. And was there like a specific moment where you were like, I need that third party. I need that extra help. Um, yeah, the divorce. The divorce was fueled by my dad, unfortunately, like leaving. So for a year, it was me not really knowing or conceptualizing where he was. And it was just my mom would always just try to do the best option that would make me the happiest or she thought would make me the happiest, which would be like trying to always remain positive. But I'm like, mom, like I'm not positive. I can't just switch my train of thought. So it was like in those moments where I'm like, I need a third party, like objective view and advice. No, and I think that that's like the biggest, like for me, I was in therapy, like off and on, you know, sometimes you need it. And then sometimes you can go away for it for a little while. And then like going back to it, I think is really helpful. And just having that person that's removed from the situation is huge because there is none of that like bias. Like there's no like colliding relationships or anything like that. But just going back to what you were saying about your father leaving. Did that impact your self-worth? Did it hinder your relationships of adults and like impact like your trust in adults? I'm just really curious about that. Certainly. And I would, one thing that's so interesting about mental health is it does have physical manifestations. So now I'm like worked along enough with myself to like recognize my physical symptoms of anxiety before I go into a full-on anxiety attack. I notice my voice starting to change, my jaw clenches up a bit. So then I'm like, okay, what's the anxiety? And then I work myself back. And then in, so I feel like that's only because I was able to get um, therapy. And then when it comes to how it impacts me today, the feelings of abandonment that I experienced when I was younger certainly impacts my trust today. I feel like I almost have like a, a guarded nature to myself in which it takes a little bit more to have that trust in others and I could only imagine how much more complicated it would be if I did not have the tools necessary and the help 
through my mom and through my therapist. That's great to hear. And like, I was also going to ask you whether the experiences that you went through growing up contributed to having a better self-awareness, although very difficult situations that I can't imagine going through, but did that have any contributing factor to your desire to help others at this point? Yeah, and I feel like it. you have to own up to yourself, like your own problems in order to truly help those around you. So I feel like it takes um, a moment of pause, of self-reflection, and really going and seeing like where in your life, um, where you might have suffered emotionally, and going back and really working through things. Because there's so many things that you don't factor into school pressure, family pressure. In the 21st century, there's so many different avenues of stressors. And it just, you need to take time to reflect on how those things impact you. COVID, for example, it's something that almost every single person was affected by that. And there definitely will be mental health ramifications. So it's even acknowledging now, going back and being, how did that pandemic affect me? Am I isolating still? And especially being in this in-between, like post-COVID world, we still see some people who are more hesitant to go out, which is totally understandable, but it definitely has had like a real life impact. And I mean, that's kind of why I started this as well, because like what you're saying about like, there's so many like outlets to cause like anxiety provoking issues. And like one of them is like social media. And that was huge because you could during COVID, you could spend like if you had time, you didn't have that structure in your day. If you wanted to spend like eight hours on social media, you could do that. And what that does is since you don't have all these distractions around you, you could like be looking and seeing, oh, this person's doing well during the pandemic. Why am I not feeling that way when really they might just be putting it's up like an song. advertisement. I feel like everything on social media, it's like the best version of themselves. But it's like hard when you're bombarded with it to like, you know that it's like fake. But still, when you see it constantly, it's hard to acknowledge that. And, and you, you talked about the physical manifestations for you. If you want to talk a little bit more about that with your experience, but also what are some of those other physical manifestations and how can people get more in touch with like knowing, okay, I'm experiencing this feeling. Now, what do I do from here? Yeah. So for me, I noticed my jaw clenching, like even before earlier on in the interview, I was nervous. My voice was shaking a little bit. So there's these physical manifestations, um, tapping your foot, chewing on your fingernails or picking at your fingernails. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. It's all these like little ticks. And a lot of them, I feel like it's so viewed as like, oh, they're just nerves. But if you're able to recognize that you're doing that, it could stop it building up to being like, oh, I'm going in. Like when I have to do a presentation now, I notice my jaw. I notice myself like tapping my foot and I'm like, okay, well, everything will be fine. And with self-efficacy, which is the belief of positive thinking, I am able to go out and do a presentation and not be as nervous because I recognize it and I like nip it in the bud in a sense. Definitely. It seems like you've developed some great techniques on how to deal with your anxiety. And also, I don't know if you've experienced this, is that it feels like it's like the anxiety is like so real. We feel like we're being chased by like a bear. Like there's like the idea of like our ancestors, they literally had to survive and they had to like look for their food and do all those things. And there could have been external dangers. And that's what's trained our mind to think in that survival. Fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. Exactly. And then now we adopted the same mindset, but there isn't those external threats, but they feel really real because our body continuously is experiencing those same symptoms. Yeah. And with generalized anxiety disorder, which is what I have, and I'm super open to talking about that as well. 
it's like my brain will automatically make a conclusion because it is so hardwired in us biologically. But the instance with my dad, for example, like that whole year in which I didn't quite know what was going on and I only got the information through my mom, my brain made all these assumptions. So today, another recognizing my anxiety is recognizing when I'm making assumptions. Like I'm like, oh, my, I sent this text and they didn't reply in the same manner they typically do. Maybe they're busy. There's so many logical answers. And, but the minute that I catch myself being like, what did I do wrong? I'm like, okay, Will, you're overthinking. Like you need to back off. But it's crazy how much biologically there's components and then the social factors like add on top of it. So there's like the biopsychosocial approach is what psychologists use now, which is factoring in the biological component. Do you have a genetic predisposition history of humankind and then factoring in the social environment? And that could kind of trigger and work together to amplify. And you have like all this knowledge now about like mental health and catching yourself when you're struggling. And you talked about like your father and how he was very like man up and like what does that mean? And I think now in this society, it's like an un. It's like it's, what is like what, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, what does it what does it mean? And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that like your relationship has slowly been like improving, and you've developed this strength of yours in like helping other people. How is that connection between you and your father? Has he been able to open up his mind a little bit more to it? It's very hard with my dad. He's very much like still firm in his beliefs. Um, and I think it comes down to like the lack of acknowledging just what it is to be a teenager in the 21st century. Because there's already so much going on in the world with social media, as we discussed. and you know, politics, there's all these different stressors, but then to have somebody that you should have trust with through association, him being my dad, and having that be ripped away by his choosing, and then his failure to acknowledge like any of my mental health concerns still to this day is, it's obviously a barrier and it's more of like a casual friendship and a friendship in which I wouldn't necessarily open up to him about my emotional self still. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Will. It was definitely very helpful just getting your perspective of your experiences with your father when you were younger versus your experiences with him now. But since you've been at college, like what struggles, if you have examples that you've seen with college students where they get stuck or scenarios where the mental health issues have come up? I feel like there's just so many, you know, there's already, like we talked about previously, like there's so many societal things at large, but then talk about a college campus, there's roommate issues, there's um, issues that you could have with a professor, there's so many different avenues for interpersonal relationships that could possibly cause stress. And in the context of my, and like what got me into Agape was freshman year, I had a roommate um, conflict and growing up with a dad in which I didn't feel as if I could be myself and feel comfortable around him, it meant a lot to me to go to a college in which I could feel comfortable with who I'm living with. And then I went out to student psychological services, which on LMU's campus is what they would say is a like world-class mental health facility. And I was put on a wait list. And it's how could you wait list my own emotional I feel like it's belittling to an extent. Um, 
No, and I think if you don't have your mental health, you really don't have anything. And I think that adding even more just support on college campuses for it is vital because you know, like career fairs, doing all that. Like, why does do it matter? Does yeah. it matter if you don't have your sanity? If you're not in the right headspace? No. Like, yeah, it it's very always like reactionary. It's after the fact. That's how like say LMU's view on mental health is very reactionary. Like, and that's across um, colleges across America. It's like this mental. It's so much of an afterthought. It's like we're not going to put in place things to minimize the possibility for a mental health catastrophe. And that's actually what motivated and founded Agape was there was a student who committed suicide tragically. And it turns out that his name was on the wait list for student psychological services. And it's if we had these measures in place, um, we see Wellness Wednesday today, but that's recent and that's very band-aid level of discussion. Um, What... available options are we going to have that doesn't require a wait list and should there even be a wait list it's crazy yeah really really unfortunate no definitely yeah it definitely is and i think it's crazy i feel like everyone wants to and i i fall victim to this all the time is like feeling like i'm not burdening or like i don't want to burden someone or i want to seem like everything is okay because I'm comparing myself to what I'm, I'm comparing what I'm feeling on the inside to what other people seem to be like on the outside. But I think that where a lot of people get stuck is just thinking that they're going it alone. And I think that that's a huge issue. And I feel like it, we're bred like in our society to be number one, you know, and we always have to present like the best features of ourselves and whether it's social media or even like interpersonally you always want to project the best version of yourself but it's in the realization that everybody has their own battles and we could be vulnerable and open up about it that true relationships and change could come about definitely and and like that's the thing is though also is you know being what like you said like being number one and i think you're really good it's at always number one it's like such a competitive society and you talked about yeah, in a podcast yeah no it's check it out guys <laughs> <laughs> um but like there's always gonna be another milestone to hit and like being number the hill one just gets higher it just higher. keeps getting high like yeah and it's that like we can't open up interpersonally like it takes so much to go to other another person and especially like a large group of people i feel like one-on-one more people are more likely to open up about themselves especially on like an emotional aspect but a group setting, it's so difficult to find that. And that's exactly the reason why I joined Agape. Um, having a community where mental health dialogue is factored in, it's kind of therapeutic and you get a lot of, out of it, especially with everyone being so empathetic and learning from each other's past and their history. I open up so hopefully somebody could learn about themselves through me being open and transparent and just having a community of 60 it's no wonder why people like grow as an individual yeah definitely and going off that with agape i think that's a tremendous vehicle of towards destigmatizing mental health but what do you recommend and what has your been your experience with agape like growing since you've been a part of it on campus like how have schools handled you all and like what do you recommend schools do to help destigmatize it and just grow it in general? Um, at first, you know, they didn't even want us to be a service organization because they were so kind of 
upset with the idea that a mental health is worthy of a service organization status. Service organizations stem to the very earliest of LMU's clubs on campus, and they've always kind of been associated, they make the school also look really, really good. So they're very proud of them because we contribute so many hours. I have to do 35 um, a semester. And they had such pushback with the idea that mental health is on par with the other service areas of focus, which include homelessness, the environment, sexual abuse, and violence. They were so against mental health being put on that platform, but when you look at it, mental health intersects with so many other issues, it's, and it's an equal opportunist. White men are actually the most likely to suffer from suicide. And then if you look on the opposite end of the spectrum, women are diagnosed at a far higher rate than men. So there's obviously like this societal context that needs to be factored in when discussing it. And like on an individual level, you talked about like sharing with like a group versus an individual. And sometimes it's more comforting sharing with an individual. From your experience, how do you help someone that you know is struggling but doesn't want to be helped? I think if they do not, like they vocally express to you, like, I don't need help, I'm good, bro. Like that type yeah. of behavior. I would say just constantly showing up and doing tangible actions. Um, you kind of have to work about your actions in a way that is non-direct. But if you are still there as a support system for that individual, I would say you are doing your job. For example, I've had multitude. I've had friends throughout high school. This was a specific friend that I'm thinking of in high school, who was very depressed, and he was a male who couldn't really necessarily ex like pinpoint exactly what he was feeling. It was just feelings of off. I'm tired. I'm disinterested. But because of my vulnerability and going to see a therapist, I knew exactly what he was experiencing. So it was me buying him food. It was planning activities, so there's some level of accountability, but doing it in a non-direct, caring manner. Totally. And with that, like you said, you were able to see like you have experienced stuff like that. What do you do in situations where you haven't experienced something that someone else is struggling with? and they confide in you and they come to you for help. I always struggle with that, like, do I give them advice? Because there's always that feeling like, they're coming to me, I need to help answer something to them. They're looking for something from me. What do I do there? What do I give to them? Or do you handle it from the perspective of, let me just listen and allow them to be heard? I always approach it with listen and be heard. Because I find that so many people want to just have their feelings be validated. And I feel like part of any good interpersonal relationship should be that level of emotional empathy and emotional fairness and presentness. But when it comes to when they want directly advice, and I always preface, do you want me to be a lending hand to cry on, a lending shoulder, or do you want me to give you advice? I always try to separate the two before even beginning, especially when people come to me with a serious conversation. But when they want the advice, um, and I have not directly lived through what they are telling me, one, I will see if anybody in Agape has come with their own story, because there's so many of us that are vulnerable and open. I do feel as if I have knowledge about 
situations that are other from me, and I'll express this when I give them this advice, this is coming from a friend, but I am now part of this amazing, beautiful, diverse community where I get these perspectives on what have helped individual people through their own problems, which potentially could mirror my friends, or there's some universal advice. I'm here, I care. Um, also, the worst thing is isolating yourselves, which for me is the number one sign if I'm not doing well. So just planning stuff and getting them out of the house and back into whatever community they are a part of. Gotcha. And you just mentioned like, I was literally like, my next question is like the warning signs. And like you talked about a little bit, alluded to your roommate from freshman year. In general, what are those warning signs where you think, okay, like this person needs help. They need to go see a therapist. They need to shake it up. What do you do to help? Or you talked a little bit about what you do to help them, but what are those things that can possibly get them out of that rut? I would say, well, the number one telltale sign is separation. It is detaching yourself from community. It is feeling as if you need to handle this problem alone, which is what, so it's the cycle. You go alone because you're sad and feeling depressed and you don't want to burden somebody else, which only makes you more depressed and more anxious because now you're separating yourself from other people. And when you're separated from other people and you see somebody that's separated and isolating themselves, the best way is to not only hear them out, but try to bring them back out into whatever community they belong to. For me, there was an unfortunate incident that happened four months ago with my old roommate. And that kind of sparked me not talking and engaging with other people. And it took people within those multiple communities that I'm a part of at LMU to be like, hey, come back, we miss you. We want to hear you, like, are you okay? And it was that feeling of welcomeness which allowed me to do better and to heal. Yeah, and yeah, no, and again, like, I'm so sorry about what happened a couple months back, but I think that's like really valuable because when a person isolates themselves, it just gives you further proof that something's wrong, that you're going through something, the situation's different. But if you're able to reinsert yourself into all the normal things of life that you were going through, that isn't without saying that, you know, still experiencing and help and going through with that, not just pretending like nothing's happened, but like going on and like continuing all the activities, it reminds yourself that, okay, like there's other things out there. There's other things out there. I'm not, you know, that far off. And all the people that I still had in my life before are still there with me right now. And I would also recommend too, like when you do bring somebody that's isolating themselves back in, allow them to speak about the incident on their own terms. I wouldn't try to necessarily force them to address why they're isolating or the reasoning, but just being there and bringing them back out to the community is a step in the healing process. And then also, would you say that there are other populations that would be more at risk? Um, I would say one thing about mental health is it really is an equal opportunist. It's an equalizer. In context of diagnosed mental health, we see women have higher percentages. But then when it comes to those who actually follow through with feelings of sadness to unfortunately suicide men, have much higher statistics and specifically it's white men. So social context, while it may amplify, such as LGBTQ youth oftentimes having higher rates of depression due to unsupportive parents, it truly can affect anybody across all the spectrums. And I think that also shows that the value of just being heard and living your truth. Now that you mention it, 
with my friends who are girls and my friends who are guys, I feel like the conversations are a lot more open and about like regarding their mental health with like the girls than they are with the guys. And and you said like they struggle more yeah, than like guys. the masculinity, the toxic masculinity of just being unable to express like men don't cry. Um, all those sort of notions are so ingrained into our society. And even if looking at the media, for example, and how they portray masculine characters, it's always with the sense of I'm strong physically. So I don't need to focus on like the emotional aspects. But women, on the other hand, are bred to be more emotional, more vulnerable. And I think that's a big plus. And I think men should open up and be more vulnerable and nurturing. And it's not a sign of weakness and it's actually a sign of great great strength yeah. and it's gonna and it takes a lot to do that whole switch of perspective but it starts interpersonally with men realizing that they could open up about anything and that they sh that their feelings will be heard and validated and it isn't a sign of weakness crazy too like being in a fraternity and being in a service organization so many times situations are so similar with the trauma in which individuals have experienced and have to like deal with the ramifications but the way in which people approach it is so different with the frat it's oftentimes people approach me first with like the ramifications not the the after effects i guess you could say well the people with agape tend to be more direct but at the end of the day the problems are the same and it across even the LMU community, we all are going through things, especially like COVID, for example. We all went through that and we all need to be heard and process it with others. So you're saying in fraternity life, just to clarify, they like, don't approach it as directly as opposed to the mental health club. But at the end of the day, the problems are similar between people and it affects everyone. So it, they won't be as direct in opening up. I see, like, they'll tell me about their behaviors that they're doing, and they're like, I've been off, I've been isolating myself. But I'm like, what, why do you think that is? Should you talk to somebody? Rather than immediately recognizing that and feeling like they need to go to a friend. Yeah, I think that's... And that all goes back to, like, that level of masculinity where there's not that feeling of openness, like, they should be able to. And then what you're saying about, like, what people who are more manly are like tv shows or like movies like it's, if you watch like animal house like everyone would like go into college i mean obviously it's not the same at lmu yeah. the same party school i think every student knows that here but like you have this vibe of like oh this is what a college person this is what we're supposed, yeah, to, be. Is what we're supposed to be like we're supposed to like not cry not do any of that and i think it's important to realize you're that. supposed to go to the gym and just work gym. through it you know gains yeah Hel hella gains, hella gains. <laughs> hella but gains. it's like that notion that's just so like i have to live up to it and there's personal pressure to be that and then when you realize that that is not good it becomes a lot easier definitely and also i'm always curious about this like because like you've seen it in your father, you said like he struggled a lot and he didn't really, he kind of like papooed mental health and like also yeah. just had that masculine nature to him. Have you ever struggled with trying to help people that are older than you doing that? Because it's like, a, it's very tough. <laughs> even with me, like doing this, like sometimes I'm like, I feel imposter syndrome because I'm like, 
I'm a 20 year old kid. I'm not 19 anymore. Um, but yeah, I'm a 20 year old kid and I'm talking about life and I still have three quarters of my life to live. And there might be people on here that are listening and I don't want to come off like I know everything or that I'm trying to give off the idea that I've experienced all the things and stuff like that. And I try and approach it in a different way, but I'm just curious, like from your perspective, being a person that devotes their life to like helping other people, how do you deal with that like insecurity? Like, especially with um, older populations, I tend to notice that they're so set in their ways, um, going to them about anything regarding like how to better approach mental health situations could be very difficult um because i feel like our parents just like our parents generation collectively it's the baby boomer mentality of you know pull yourself up by the bootstraps it's so individual in nature but it comes down to realizing that you know other people are going through similar problems than you and it's okay to express it and when it comes to imposter syndrome specifically for you will like own own it be like i am definitely going to be helping people because other people are my age and they want to come to me because I think a lot of people will go to you because they're more relatable. You know, it's, we're kind of at least being 21, I'm over having discussions with some of these people that have lived in a totally different life than me. Like 56 year olds, like they went to college, no loans, no student debt, job right, out of college, got a house. And I feel like it's that level of relatability, which is why what both of us are doing is so impactful. Yeah, definitely. And like kind of not in the flow of this, but do you ever like struggle with guilt? That's something I struggle with all the time. And I'm just curious what your experience with that has been, if it is like at all. But I think that's another big part of like mental health that can really gnaw away at your day and away at like your... Guilt. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, guilt comes from just overanalyzing. I'm my own worst enemy. And I think that there's guilt that should be had when there should be no guilt for said reason. And um, I'm just my own worst critic. It's insane how much I overthink situations to the point where I'm making where I feel guilty about how I could have done more for another person or I could have gone above and beyond. And I think it is in just taking a step back and just having that different perspective and being like, should I feel guilty about this situation? And most of the time it doesn't warrant guilt, especially because it like eats away at you. It's something that only builds. Yeah. If I see a person on campus, and I've talked to you about this. Yeah, we're like, like we're both so nice, such nice people we're, too. But like, I, us up, yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but I see people on campus and like, maybe they're, they don't give me the nicest look. Or I may have talked to them. Yeah, they just don't give me the best vibes like when I'm really nice to them. Like, and what then did I do wrong? Stories start coming, like flowing, and I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? Like, and that's I must the have done drawing something associations, which like I talked about earlier with the, you know, like, I automatically assume the worst. That It's that, but me recognizing, I'm like, oh my God, I just created a whole story of why this individual dislikes me when I'm sure that they just were busy and going about their day. And then like the next time you see them, they're like, oh yeah, what's hey, up? how are you? Like, it's uh, so chill. Yeah, exactly. And like, and then also like being able to like flip, it's easier said than done because sometimes your, sometimes your head is knows exactly like, 
okay, I'm totally fine. But your emotions, all that anxiety, all those feelings, you're so trained to be in survival mode that your emotions are overriding your thought patterns and like the rational side of you. And I do this all the time. Even when I'm like going out and like I drink or something like that and I get like anxiety from that. Like, did I say something I shouldn't have said? Oh, the next morning. The next morning. Oh my God, it's it's horrible. (laughs) Yeah, anxiety is a real thing. Yeah. And it... And it, especially for like more self-reflective individuals, so it's like a double-edged sword, I guess. And this is something just about myself, but I feel like as open and emotional I am with other people, I'm so critical of myself then in a sense, because I try to be so in touch with my own emotions that sometimes it can fester and it builds. And it's just so hard to recognize at a point like, stop it stop overthinking you're doing good yeah and like flipping that perspective and being like okay like someone might have given me a dirty look but maybe someone was really nice to me one time and i was like kind of giving them a dirty look and what was i experiencing i was probably just really busy had a bad day or something else that had nothing to do with them and then being able to apply that to your situation on the other end it's like really important and i feel like just if I gave myself the benefit of the doubt that I give to other people, I would be in a much better perspective <laughs> just in general. Exactly. And like going off of that, I think part of it, like is the perfectionist mentality is like, how do you give yourself credit when you are feeling that guilt, when you're feeling maybe not so good about yourself? I think that's important as well. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I'm very overcritical and I'm like that type A, like high achiever personality. I need to like be in a bunch of clubs and have a lot of friends and be well liked. And it's so, it's like exhausting. And it wasn't until I had a real period of exhaustion in which I'm like, I had such bad burnout. I'm like, I'm done. I need to get away from just all this hectic stuff that's going on in my life. And I finally realized like, you are in such good shape because there are so what when I reflected upon my life and the hurdles that I've gone through I realized I have overcome so much and I'm actively still trying to be a better person and if I'm actively if I'm not letting the past stop me and I'm actively trying to be a better person each and every day I wake up I should be proud of myself and it's kind of just that shift in mentality which is hard to do but once you're able to just be proud of it the little accomplishments and just living authentically day to day it's that switch that's needed and the guilt is still there but it's severely lessened that's great no and you're definitely you're definitely doing that and just at the beginning when I asked you about like your story again as I mentioned it's it's important to understand like where you're coming from and you've been able to do all that like impacting other people and making yourself better each and every day and that a lot of it's been through like agape if you want to talk the floor is yours. Talk about everything, like about Agape, like more about the organization, what you're doing to help people on campus. Because I know you said there's that side of, you know, college campuses that struggle, but you're like the the light in that tunnel. And, and I would I just love to hear what, about it. What I think has just been the most beautiful thing about Agape is, like I said, we're four years old. We're one of the newest service organizations on campus. The history of how we got started, it's insane and tragic, so tragic about what happened and just the school's response to how they viewed us it was horrifying but um just the change that i saw with the like wellness wednesday which is now something that most lmu students attend and have gone to at some point that's something that came about as a result of agape's inception having more preventative 
measures in place instead of being so reactionary. And I think just having other people know about our club, at least they know that there's other avenues without the not directly associated to faculty or the school in which they could go. And I know that everybody in my organization will be more than willing to listen, talk, and give you advice if you want that. And that's what's so beautiful about my club. And can you think of maybe a specific moment that kind of just encapsulates your experience with Agape, like a conversation you might have had or a time or experience, or maybe even talk about the service that you do and with those individuals? Um, I would say probably my, there were two moments with Agape that really like touched me deep down. One was, so I got right, I got into the service organization my freshman year and then literally the next week we got sent home for COVID. So I never really had like a first in-person meeting my freshman year, but it was, I got so, so I'm really bad with sudden change. That's something that stems back from my dad and COVID was the biggest sudden change. Yes, that I, and yes. I think change that nobody foresaw. So I got really down in the dumps and um, started not doing the best. And it was that first meeting through Zoom in which like they, the, forum was open immediately. It was like, they're like, anybody want to talk about how they're doing? And I just talked and I did not expect my first meeting to be so open, but then I had people, somebody door dashed me ice cream. Um, it's like, just, it was that reminder that I it was not alone that kept me ultimately staying at LMU and like not overthinking about whether I made friends at the school that I was finally finding my footing in but then an unforeseen event like COVID happened. And then for our service placements, we have a ton, but we since we don't have a, nobody's licensed, obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. can't work directly with like, necessarily in like a direct line of work with individuals, but we have, um, we assist with horse therapy at a place called Dreamcatchers. And it's down in Long Beach, it's a horse stable with children who are on the spectrum, or war veterans who are suffering from PTSD. We help around with the horses. And, and then we have an after-school care program for children. Um, it's one of the schools with LMU Family of Schools. Or SPY, which is, an af which is a homeless youth shelter. And what I think just makes the service aspect so amazing is that while I'm, you're, you're interacting with the same people every time you go and serve, so you have like these interpersonal relationships in which it's like this little kid at like the elementary school and they're opening up to me and it's like I'm able to like hear their experience and learn. And it's that like formation and relationships you form through service that also makes it so special. And that's the thing too is so many people like didn't know, don't know about the service organizations that I'm like, come on. <laughs> like, and I think that's something that I'm also so happy about since my time being in Agape is just how many more people have heard about us as a organization on campus. Definitely. And, you know, for the future, you still have like a solid year and a couple months left at LMU. Where do you want to see Agape go? What are some new plans you got I in place? I feel like really happy with the amount that I have been able to contribute over my two years. My, I have two littles in the organization that Mayor and Rocky, shout out, um, love them <laughs> so much. And they're both on eBoard alongside me. And I think that the future is really, really strong. 
And I would just like to see LMU be more, they've been better about how they look at agape service organization, especially since when we were first trying to become a registered service organization. But I would just like to see more follow through and less lip service. It's a lot of talk and discussion, but more direct actions and also more of the uncomfortable conversations. Men in the age bracket of college, bipolar and schizophrenia are two more serious mental health crises that could come about during this vulnerable time period. But why isn't that being discussed? Because there's um, warning signs for that that are never discussed. So it's also going to be that sway of conversation from like, yes, wellness is important, but we should have guest speakers of more serious and grave mental health topics also at the table as well. Yeah, and can you speak a little bit more about like the warning signs of bipolar and... I don't necessarily know them per se, but definitely like just this is a age group where a lot of like serious mental health aspects could come out specifically in men. So that's why I also am try like trying to push so much for men's mental health specifically because it's like they're the group least likely to seek out help. And yet at this age currently they are the most likely to be diagnosed with either schizophrenia or bipolar. That's crazy. And most like, men don't even know about that. That they have it or, or, or that this is like the time frame in their life that they're more likely to exhibit early warning signs. That's crazy. Yeah. That's and it, especially the college lifestyle of like drinking drugs, not saying that's all, but like there is an aspect certainly of that, that only like furthers the likelihood of developing those disorders. That's also like an issue too that needs to go addressed. I mean, cause like we all, we all go out, like we all have a good time. Like, yeah. it, you're, like there's nothing, wrong, there's with nothing wrong with that. Like you can have a good time. Like, you know, that's, that's what college is about. But I also think like not going with it as like an excuse or like a re like if you're really struggling and like you're not doing well mentally, then maybe it's not a good idea to be going out and drinking or to, you know, be doing other drugs. But the issue is, is that sometimes th those behaviors are normalized because it's just expected. Like you're going to have a good time. You do that. And then maybe that sends them more into like depression or issues like that. Yeah. And it's like, I almost feel like there's like an expectation that was placed upon college before I even came that made it so unique, I guess. Cause it's like, I'm like, it should be like the movies. Right. And then <laughs> yeah. it got so much better when I realized that I'm happy that it isn't like the movies and I'm just living my own unique college experience and there shouldn't be an expectation. But it's been like a relief knowing, like I've never felt like someone's never been like, Oh, you have to drink tonight. And I, I went into that, like, into college with that idea that like, oh, like people are going to really judge me. And that's been really relieving. But I think also like what I was saying is like knowing like if you're feeling sad or if you're like alone and maybe don't drink and maybe like teach yourself to not do that. Although it's easier said than done because some people really like my, I come from a family that really struggles with alcohol. So I've been more hypersensitive to that. But I think it's important to like have those guidelines, even when we're faced with the idea of what college is like. And then also, like, um, you touched on alcoholism. I, my father, too, is an alcoholic. And I have, like, preventative, I have a support group in which I tell people, I'm like, if you notice me, notice me routinely drinking next day, next day, tell me. So 
the pressure is not all on myself. Because I feel like so many times I would try to put the sole responsibility on myself because I'm so t in touch with myself emotionally, like I talked about that double-edged sword, but it's also realizing that I have these other people that I trust truthfully to put deep emotional aspects in and like I entrust them with that information. And I tell them, like, I, I expect this from you as my friend. And that's totally valid. Yeah, and you talked a lot about like the accountability system and like if you want to speak more to that, but I think that that's huge is having those people, even with like goal setting or stuff like that, telling people your goals holds you more accountable because they're people that you trust and you don't I mean, want to like let them down. In a positive them. way too. Exactly. Like, them being there to remind you of what an amazing person you are. Why, like it doesn't always have to be so negative too in regards to you shouldn't, like I've noticed you drinking in a couple of days, like that's more serious, but it could also be, wow, Will, you've been doing amazing on, like you, you did the dishes today, like that's amazing. My roommates now like have been more actively engaging with positive remarks. That has made the world of difference within the last two months since the roommate situation. And I think it's those small reminders with like interpersonal relationships that you trust that are just beautiful and gets me going. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think another one, it like, and also like if you do drink to like distract yourself from doing those things, like sometimes it might not be because you're like depressed, it just might be a lot of anxiety and coming back from like expectations of where you should be at and the constant, my friend sent this like article like a while back about like the idea of being behind and how our society is always trained to like think, oh, we're ahead or behind, or maybe you're exactly where you're meant to be. But you're, you're very experienced in this and like you helped me with like my resume and everything and like LinkedIn and telling me yeah. how to market yourself. How do you not get super, cause I think honestly, like I think LinkedIn's becoming even more, make is more of a stressor now than like Instagram is for me because now that we have like, we're entering this new chapter in our life. So how do you, you know, not, put as much pressure on yourself yeah, leading into I, that. I'm thinking about going into human resources. So I kind of dipped my toes into the LinkedIn world <laughs> yeah. and I got fully emerged. It's like insane how it's literally marketing yourself to other people, which I, I mean, I get that it's an app and has to happen, but the damaging mental health aspects and ramifications can be easily pronounced and like visible. And I think you just have to remind yourself that well, yes, you can market yourself and you want to make yourself more desirable. At the end of the day, self-worth does not come from what role you have or what company you work for. It should come, come from intrinsically and how you interact on a day-to-day -day basis, how you treat other people. It's like that switch in value and what we give value. Because ultimately, if you give value to the type of job you get, and you'll be disappointed because there are is always like that next hurdle but it's switching it to being i love where i am emotionally i love what friends i have currently i love what activities i'm being a part of right now and i'm trying to be a good positive person in those clubs or organizations that's what where you should get that feeling of fulfillment that's huge is like always because you could have like 10 things that you're doing amazingly and you have one thing that you mess up going back to the guilt thing like it, might have treated your friend great 10 times and done one iffy thing and then you only focus on the one thing and I think that doing that's really important yeah and then also um like just speaking on my own behalf I try to do club tennis as well yeah. 
And I realized, I'm like, oh my God, I'm stressing out about so much about club tennis when I'm already a part of a fraternity and a service organization. I just dropped club tennis. And <laughs> yeah. while it sucked and I like missed the friends that I did make, I play with them on occasion, but now I don't feel that responsibility to constantly having to go to practice, a practice that was at time conflict with two of my other clubs. So that like, while it was like sucked that I had to say goodbye in the end it made my life so much easier and one less thing to worry about so that's another piece of advice I'd have is give yourself a break and don't feel as if you need to do so many things because you won't get fulfillment out of it how do you say no to things though like like what do you like you said no to club tennis like that's something I think again more always seems better to people how yeah. do you Personally, like, I'm like, okay, this isn't going to benefit me. Like, I should drop this because I think that's not easy to do. Yeah, no. And it takes a great deal of, like, courage to say no and set up healthy boundaries. And for me, one of the hardest things that I struggled with was communicating in, like, a healthy manner boundaries. Um, I'm a people pleaser. I want everybody to like me. I want to go out of my way to help them. But I've kind of had to train myself to the moment in which I'm being affected in a negative <laughs> manner. That's when I need to really like push back and look at my life and areas that are causing me stress. And when it's repeated that it's the same source, that's when I have to put up a boundary and say no. Yeah. Um, and I think that's... It's prioritizing yourself, which once again, it's not selfish, but it may be looked upon to be as like a selfish thing, but it's not especially when it comes to your own mental health and well-being yeah and again like because uh, like i was talking to you about when i interviewed nutty or josh nutson but he talked about the idea of like importance versus urgency how like a lot of the things that are urgent you have to hit the deadlines you have to get emails in you have to get that next internship or you, the most stressful one right now is housing for next year i like finding yeah. housing is always like so stressful but there's always things that you can find that need to get done, but can you make those important things, the meditating, the journaling, the doing something you love once every single day, like finding that time to do one thing that you love every day, making that important and making those urgent things. It's a just less what important. you give priority to. And I always just try to give one aspect of my day priority to myself and not in a necessarily like work setting. It's I want to get coffee today. And that's like my one fun outing. So it's just also setting like little easy, manageable tasks that you could reward yourself and feel as if you accomplished something. And also, I just think realizing that you only get college once, you know, especially for COVID robbing. <laughs> exactly. But like if someone's like having a great conversation with you and you might need to do an assignment or something that could wait a little longer maybe have that conversation. And like, that's what I'm trying to do more often is having the end in sight is really important. Realize, okay, I only have a year left here. How can I make the most out of it? Yeah. And it's like really important. And it's just also like, times are not normal. I would classify my college experience as the most abnormal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like my parents, like that's another thing. People like older generations don't get the COVID factor per se, but following it's like, I've had two years of craziness let's just enjoy and let's be easy on ourselves. And I feel like every college student should just also be reflected and be like, wow, we went through something that's insane and unprecedented. It's okay to deviate a little bit from the typical high expectations you have of yourself because this is supposed to be an enjoyable time in our lives. Definitely. And I'm not going to remember the test, but I'm going to remember 
a fun experience that I did. Exactly. And like going off of that, you obviously had a lot of like struggles growing up and like a lot of things that did not go your way that you probably wanted to. And I think, you know, life is all about like chapters and there's different chapters of your life. There's, you know, high school, there's college and like we're still in the midst of that chapter in college. For people that are looking for that, you know, reassurance, like they want to move on to a new part of your life. Like what advice do you have for them to like stay patient or to stay in it and realize that there's like light at the end of the tunnel? So I kind of have been on both of those ends. I've kind of always been looking at the light at the end of the tunnel and being like, I just want to finish this chapter out. Like I remember getting into college um, while I was in high school and I was immediately like, okay, I want to wrap this high school thing. Thing up. Yeah. And then also where I'm like, have such a goal and it is the only thing I focus on. So I've kind of had both aspects with it. And I think it's just owning the moment and appreciating where you are currently, because you could look at your whole life as in what's going to happen next and how should I better prepare for the future. But for example, if I wanted to prepare for the future, sometimes you don't know what the future is. I would have gone to a community college for the first two years and then transferred following COVID if I would have known. But that was something so unforeseen and it's so hard to always be doing the right thing because nothing in the future is certain. So it's just about owning the moment and being the best possible version of yourself given the current state. That's always like something I've taken into account. And this next question might be difficult to answer, but for your life, what would be like the best life possible for you? Like what would give you the most joy? I always like asking people that. Probably living a very joyous life currently, but I just need to be a lot easier on myself. Um, I have a 4.0, like my most joyous life would be one in which, although like even throughout this interview, I promoted and like talked about how you yeah. shouldn't be hard on yourself, but I'm still crazy <laughs> hard on myself. Yeah. So just celebrating the little victories and one where I don't feel as if anything is forced and rather I would want to. I want to go into human resources. So I would hope that when I get my internship and I get a job within that field, it doesn't feel like work. And I'm find enjoyment in almost everything, which I know is impossible, but that would be ideal. Totally. And it's like this guy, Wayne Dyer, I don't know if you've heard of him, but like he, he died like 10 years ago, but he always said like being open to everything and attached to nothing. And I think like that's a good mentality to have. He, what you said, like I could go into HR, but I'm open to, you know, anything possibly happening and just yeah, like having you that never mindset. know about the future and it's okay to have these goals, but just realize like the goals might change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, lastly, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to go over? I know you mentioned like certain resources and also just like if people were to reach out to you, wanted to learn more about Agape. People, what... Feel free to like reach out to me. I'm sure my Instagram will be tagged. But I think just the one thing I want to reiterate is it is okay to not be okay. As cliche as that sounds, take a moment of pause and reflection and don't beat yourself up if you have these feelings of I'm not doing okay. That is completely normal, valid, and it is worthy of discussing with somebody else. Um, not internalizing everything, not trying to place blame solely upon yourself, and just realizing that given the current state, you are doing the best you can. And there's so much going on in the world that just going about your normal day-to-day -day life is totally amazing.
Totally. And well, I just want to thank you, man, like, because oh, we, I love this. <laughs> yeah, when we did our pre-interview call, it was like it turned into like a four hour conversation. And yeah. it was like awesome because like was I was crazy. able to just talk about whatever with you and like have a good time and be able to, you know, see that like when you open up to people, you start attracting all these like really cool individuals in your life that are interested in the same things as you are. And I've been able to see that with us. And yeah, I just want to thank you so much for joining. Thank and you for me. yeah, and for all you guys, if you want to reach out to me, my Instagram page is 19 year old shrink podcast, and my personal page is WJG23. But thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Take care.